0: Hey, how's everybody doing this morning? That good, huh? Awesome. (laughs) My name is Matt. I'm one of the co-pastors at a, as as Steve described, just across the skyline called Watershed. And we are about, uh, a little over five years old now, it was this time uh, back in 2005 that my family and another family moved here in Charlotte. And uh, one of the first churches that we came and sort of experienced just to see what church was like here in the city was Warehouse, and uh, just blown away at the environment, and little did we know that over the course of five years, such an incredible friendship would begin to take place and and root in and develop and mature, and um, I don't know that there's a church in this city, in fact I'm convinced there's there's no church in this city that has had uh, more impact on our community than your church, and so I guess felt like I needed, before we got started this morning, to, as a, an ambassador, so to speak, uh, of Watershed to just say thank you. Uh, Bruce has become a, a really close friend of myself and Scott Hofert, the other co-pastor at Watershed, is, has been so gracious to meet with us and, and uh, advise us and counsel us on so many fronts. And then um, your philosophy and your passion for justice has been like this incredibly uh, beautiful, slow leak into our community. Mark, Dickman, who uh, oversees that part of your, your, uh, your ministry here, has been a huge influence. to. I don't think Mark will ever know just how much his thinking and his, uh, his way of seeing the world and, and brokenness and suffering has impacted our pastor that oversees justice and ultimately our church. So I just wanted to say thank you this morning. Uh, I ran into people from Warehouse pretty frequently, it seems like. There's a lot of you, can't get away from you. That's a good thing. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell them, uh, you know... When Watershed grows up, we want to we be like Warehouse, you know? We want to be that cool. Um, and I even tell people that when I grow up, I want to be like Bruce, you know, maybe with a little more hair. But um, thank you. I, I, I told that joke in the first hour, and no one laughed, so I didn't know if I was going to get invited back the second hour, to be quite frank. Um, all right, so anyway, thank you. Got all that out of the way. Um, I recently heard a, a pastor tell a story about a, a guy from one of the LA gangs there in Los Angeles, this pastor's church is in, in LA, about an LA gang member, former gang member, that started attending his church. And this guy was really rough around the edges, had the tattoos, piercings, whole nine yards. Um, but he was, he was curious about church, and so he started attending and connecting, and over time he even professed a life with Jesus. But about six to eight months into it, he just sort of vanished. Just sort of went off the radar screen and Someone ran into him in the public, out in public, and they asked, Why did you leave? And he said, I had the wrong idea about church. I thought connecting to a church would be more like connecting to a gang. You see, in gangs, you're not just nice to each other once a week. Instead, in gangs, it's like you're part of a family. And this cut this pastor to the core because he said, I knew this guy's expectations were dead on for what the church should be like. And he described how disheartening it was to be the leader of a community and to think that a gang could somehow paint a better picture of what it meant to be part of a loving community than his own church. You know, it's a beautiful thing when someone finds community and familial-type relationships in the church. And it's so fulfilling, when God uses people to help other people grab hold of Christ and experience a life that's familiar to transformation and familiar to renovation and reconciliation in their lives, yet I also know that sometimes people just get overlooked, right? I mean, sometimes they're forgotten or mistreated or mishandled in relationships, which grieves me because I I know what this means. Now, I I know that for some it means that they'll walk away from the pursuit of community or church altogether, and even worse, they'll just walk away from attempting to connect themselves with God in Christ at any level. In Genesis, we're told that as human beings, we were created in the image of God, that we're stamped with His image, and as image bearers, there exists this drive to be connected to the right things and the right relationships in the right ways. And so, like, there's this drive for that to be our reality, but then there's the reality of what really is out there and how difficult that this can sometimes be. And that's the tension I'd like us to consider this morning. And I want to do this by taking a look at the sort of community that Jesus envisioned from day one with his disciples and what that may have actually looked like. Someone once asked Jesus, They said, you know, Jesus, all the laws, all the commandments, what are they really about? I mean, which ones are the most important? And you remember his response, right? He said to them, love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you ever get a little cloudy about what life is really about, if you ever get a little hung up on what's important, let me, let me just, bring it down to a baseline level for you. Let me clarify it for you, what it means to live life to the fullest, to be fully human, to be fully alive. Love, he said. Love God with everything that you have, with all of yourself, and then love others the way you want others to love you. For Jesus, this was what it was always about. For Jesus, it was always about love. And the truth is that no one had ever seen anyone love the way Jesus loved, right? Right? I mean, he just, he, he redefined love. He, he set a, a completely new standard for what it meant to love others. His love was the sort of love that just didn't seem to quit. It always took on the right form and the right consistency. The sort of love that's so unfamiliar yet so compelling that, and deep that it's often frightening. Love so profound that it wasn't afraid to die if that was what it took. And, and in the end, that's exactly what it took. Jesus willingly laid down his life for the sake of humanity for the sins of humanity and when he did it was all for one reason it was all because of love and it's interesting just before jesus died he gathered together like his posse those that were closest to him his disciples and he said listen i have this new command that i'm going to give you he said love one another which really wasn't new at all. In fact, it's the oldest commandment, but what made it new was what he said after this. He said, love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. In other words, love people with the sort of love that you've experienced and observed in our time together, the sort of love that swims upstream against the world's ideals about love, the sort of love that's relentless and sacrificial and mind-boggling because when you do this, there will be no doubt, there will be no question about whose you are for the rest of your life. If you never spoke another word, it wouldn't matter. The evidence would point to this truth, that you are my disciples, that you are my students and my followers and my friends. But this raises a, an important question. I mean, what then did love look like for these early communities? I mean, if there were like these banners that would have sort of flowed in the wind, that overlooked these communities, these Jesus communities that expressed the sort of love that the disciples would have experienced and witnessed, what would they have read? And and I wonder how many of us here, if someone looked at our life, they would say, these banners exist in our life, and our communities today. You see, I think the first banner in the Jesus community that would have sort of defiantly flapped in the wind would be, have been a banner that said, Here in this Jesus community, everyone is welcome. And the rub here is everyone, because in that day and age, there were all sorts of social and religious and political and sexual and ethnic boundaries everywhere boundaries everywhere for everybody and to violate boundaries to engage someone who was quote out of bounds as it was seen in your culture was considered scandalous which is why jesus was a common disposition towards him was that of scandal he was considered scandalous and the reason he was so scandalous was that many of those type people people like tax collectors and roman centurions and prostitutes and lepers and the sick and the poor and women they would approach Jesus and he would accept and embrace them and heal those on the margins of everyone else's boundaries. And for the longest time, the the disciples really struggled to to get what he was doing. But after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit became present in their lives, their community became the the first communities in the history of the world where everyone was truly welcomed. (coughs) Excuse me. Every culture... Every society has marginalized people. Those people who are more invisible than visible. And in that day and age, the most invisible person on the planet was the slave. Slaves could be bought and sold. They could be used and abused in any way their owners saw fit. They could even be killed if they became crippled or sick or too old old to be productive. And no one would say anything because they were thought of as nothing more than ordinary objects, livestock in a lot of realms. In fact, Aristotle wrote this. He said, all those who are not Greek are born slaves by nature. And how's that for a pretty high opinion of yourself, you know? Yet there was this community that remembered a day when their leader taking on the role of a slave draped a towel over his arm and knelt down with a basin of water and insisted on washing their feet. And he said, now, you do this. You take on the status of a slave and how you serve each other. And people who take on this role, people who are willing to serve others in this capacity, they are the greatest in our community. And as the disciples began connecting the dots, their community became places where slaves were invited and, and welcomed, where they would approach and embrace slaves, saying, No, now you, you come in. You be a part of us. And it was staggering to everyone that watched this take place. Aristides, who was another Greek philosopher in, AD, in 140 AD, wrote, Any slaves they may have among them, they persuade to become Christians because of their love for them. I mean, it was just unheard of. No one had ever loved and accepted slaves this way. But because of Jesus, slaves, as well as women, who were considered just a notch above slaves for the record, slaves and women were often given roles of leadership. They were honored and embraced as brothers and sisters without discrimination. The ancient world had very little use for women or for slaves, they also had very little use for the poor. But followers of of Jesus, they remembered how he had treated the poor, how he once said, blessed are you who are poor. They remembered how he refused to show favoritism towards those who had wealth and power, how he once called out a rich young Jewish leader. And said, listen, if you're really wanting to discover what's missing in your life, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor. They remembered how Jesus came from a poor family and a poor community and how Jesus himself was poor. And so in the midst of their own poverty, they began to love and take care of the poor, sometimes even fasting for several days on end, just so they would have enough food as a community to offer those people in the streets who were dying of starvation. There's never been anything like this before, ever in the history of the world. The ancient world had no use for slaves, women, the poor. It also had very little use for children. Historians tell us that there was no clear conception of childhood as we know it today, back in that day and age. Until a child reached the age of about 12 or 13, they were considered to be very little use in society. Hence, things like infanticide and sexual exploitation, leaving a child to die due to exposure of the elements just because maybe they were the wrong gender or they were sick or maybe they were deformed. Like that was considered normal to that culture, talked about openly. Many historians believe that close to 50% of all children died before the age of 10. Yet there was this community that remembered Jesus saying, let the little children come unto me. And so they would hide in the forest at night and they would wait to hear for the cries of a child that had been discarded, and they would, would find that child, they would rescue it, and they would take it in and begin to raise it as one of their own and their own family and their own community, demonstrating God's love and value for them. The ancient world had very little use for women, children, the poor, slaves. It also had no room for the sick and dying. Now imagine a world, <coughs> imagine a world filled with cities Full of slums where there's no sanitation, there's no soap or vaccination or, or or very little medicine. In a world like this, disease and plague would sweep through a community and literally kill off about a quarter of the population. So, out of fear, people would often flee, often leaving their loved ones behind. You would have parents and brothers and sisters and grandparents leaving one another, discarding them in the streets to die. But there was this peculiar group of people who recalled how Jesus would touch and heal the sick, how he recklessly embraced those who were disabled or or stricken with some sort of disease. They remembered this, and so they would go recklessly into the streets, risking their own safety, risking the the safety of their families to bring in those who were sick and contagious and, and dying, bathing and clothing and feeding them, helping them to die with dignity, sometimes even dying with them themselves. And listen, I know the first century church, like it has its fair share of black eyes, right? So I'm not trying to romanticize who they were. But at the heart of who they were, they really did try as best they could to live the way Jesus instructed them to live. And here's the irony of this. These communities actually survived at a higher rate than other communities. Because apart from what was going on, apart from any medicinal solutions, were people caring for one another and and touching each other and feeding and and bathing one another and comforting and praying for each other and praying for the sick. You see, when you enter into relationship, when you enter into the the sort of community that Jesus insists is possible, you're actually entering into love. And when you enter into love, you're actually entering into healing. Recently, I heard uh, about a medical study that found that Relationally isolated people were three times more prone to disease and death than those folks with stronger relational ties. In fact, they found that people who had poor health habits, like smoking and poor eating habits and didn't exercise, like those types of people, even if they had stronger relational ties, outlived the more isolated, healthy, broccoli, tofu-eating people. No offense to those of you who are tofu tofu-eating people. I'm from Kentucky. We can't even say that word. There was another study done when, uh, where two groups of people were infected with the common cold, and they found that people with strong social ties tend to be less symptomatic and less contagious than those with weaker social ties when they infected them with this cold. Even the amount of mucus that they produced was significantly less, which I took to mean that unfriendly people literally are snottier than friendly people. This is the power of loving communities. And once there was a community that was so tried so hard to do what Jesus had instructed. They began loving each other in ways that were so passionate, so radical that a sort of miracle began to happen. People who had always been on the margin. People who had always been invisible or excluded. They began to be welcomed and included and healed. And I I wonder, do you think God could still do that today? Do you think there could be a, a Jesus community so relentless in its love, so reckless and inclusive of others that those who've given up on the church or those who have given up on themselves, those who've been excluded or pushed to the edges, those who would say, you know, I... I'm really not sure if I agree with everything about this community, and I'm not even sure I understand half what goes on around here, but all I know is that I want desperately to enter into that sort of love. Do you think God could cause this sort of banner to fly in your life and in your relationships, a banner that says, here in my life, everyone is welcome? I think the second banner that would be found in the Jesus community would be the banner that says, nobody is perfect, right? I mean, around here, everyone is on level ground. All of us are in need of what God offers in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so here, there's forgiveness for everyone. And because of the forgiveness that's offered, there are certain dynamics that exist in other communities that need not exist here. Dynamics like hiding or pretending or image management or need to impress. The scriptures teach us that we're all flawed in our nature and our character, and therefore we're all in need of grace, both from God and from one another. And because this is the reality, because we know this is true, there's no need or no space for judgment or condemnation towards others. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge one another to set and strive for higher expectations in our life. It, it doesn't mean that we passively allow sin to destroy each other's lives, but there should be no sense of superiority or uh, 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 contempt. Jesus points this out clearly when he instructs his disciples not to judge. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged in the same manner. Now, let let me bring this down to a digestible level. Let me give you an example of this. The scriptures tell us to be anxious for nothing, which sounds simple, right? Just, okay, don't be anxious, that's no problem. The problem, though, is that science tells us that some people are genetically predisposed to process higher levels of, of adrenaline, while some people are predisposed to process much lower levels, which means society exists on, like, this, bell, this bell-shaped curve. And one, on one end of, the, end of the curve, there's all these people who get really energized by living on the edge. They enjoy things like, I don't know, bungee jumping and mountain biking and skydiving and rocky mountain climbing and riding on a bull for two-point seconds, and the bull's name is Fu Manchu, but that's a whole nother story. They have a very high-risk tolerance, and they crave risk and excitement just to feel alive. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because I just describe your weekends. Then there's everyone on the other end of the spectrum, and their predisposition is to experience anxiety, anxiety. Uh, at risk levels that are, that are much, much lower. Maybe for them, anxiety or adrenaline happens when they walk into a crowded room and they're the only person there that they know. Maybe they walk into your, your cafe for the first time and like their heart is beating out of their chest or maybe it's driving to a neighborhood they've never been to or maybe it's just managing the, the emotions that, most of us would say are normal in the day-to-day interactions of our jobs or our marriage or our family. Now again, we're all instructed to be anxious for nothing. But are you beginning to see how someone who's more predisposed to handle anxiety could begin seeing themselves as superior compared to those who are predisposed to much lower levels And anxiety is just one example. I mean, the same could be said about people with personality differences or metabolism rates that aren't the same as ours or predispositions towards addiction or depression, none of which, gang, is sin. Yet because we may be different, there's the temptation to feel superior and and become judgmental or contemptuous towards people who are unlike us, to say, God, why can't you surround me with more people, I don't know, like me? You know, somebody that's easy to love. Forgetting that we're all someone's hard-to-love person. And Jesus says, that is not what it looks like in my Father's kingdom. Only God can see through all the baggage and into the inner workings of a man's heart. And so to judge is to take on the role that only God can truly perform. And to create a life or a culture that's judgmental or condemning means at some point you're going to reap what you sow. That at some point, the same sort of judgment and condemnation that you've been sowing in your life will come back to haunt you. And so there was a time when the Jesus community remembered these words and they actually tried to do what He had said. And what began to happen was that things like race and social class and sexuality and money and religion, those things that always drew lines of separation, suddenly began to be erased, so much so that these Jesus communities became known as community, where there's this profound sense of unity, where everyone was valued and respected equally, given the same opportunities and encouraged to have high expectations for themselves equally. I think this is why Paul's words are so powerful. It must have been so powerful when he wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, in the Jesus community, everyone is welcome in the Jesus community, nobody is perfect, and in the Jesus community, anything is possible, right? I mean, with Jesus, you just never know. in the Jesus community, when he gets a hold of a person's life, when his transformative work begins to take root and begin to shape a person's heart when his spirit and power explode into someone's life people begin to discover that they can do things that they never realized that they could do so a guy named simon becomes peter which is petra or it means rock and a wealthy guy named joseph becomes so generous so encouraging that he becomes barnabas which means son of encouragement and a guy named Saul, whose whole life was devoted to killing and imprisoning early Christians, this guy becomes Paul. And he goes on to devote himself to reaching out and, and sharing this Jesus with people who were completely displaced from the Jewish religion. They were called Gentiles, actually. And he loved these, this one group of people so much that it ultimately cost him his life. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, he has the capacity to see beneath the surface and see what's really possible. And in the final few days of his life, the scriptures tell us that he rode into Jerusalem with people lined in the street, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And within five days, he was hanging on a cross with many of these same people yelling, crucify him. And instead of promising retribution, instead of asking God to squash them, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. For so they know not what they do. Why does he do this? Because he sees more inside of them than they're able to see in themselves. He, and he knows that there's more to come too, right? Like that within a few weeks, Peter would stand in front of many of these same people and say, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one you crucified... God has declared is the Messiah, the Savior that you've actually been waiting for for years and years and years. And it says in the book of Acts that when these people heard this, these same people heard what Peter had said, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, Oh God, did we really do that? And he said, Yes, that was you. And then they said, Well, what should we do? And he said, No, you should repent. You should believe. You should be baptized. And you should identify in your life with Him, and they did. And that's where it's all, that's where it all began, where this community started, a community where everyone was welcome. No one, nobody was perfect, and anything is possible. I want to show you a photograph. This is my friend Dave Hall. Uh, The first, I don't know, four and a half years that Watershed met, we actually met at Actors Theater, just uh, just off the Beltway, the two seventy seven Beltway, and uh, Dave would come and set in the mornings as we were preparing for our Sunday morning at Watershed, and he would set and drink coffee. Um, Dave had spent the better part of the last ten or fifteen years of his life living on the street. That was until about. Three years into Watershed, this small community of guys, young guys, like mid to late 20s, invited him to begin living with them in in this little two-bedroom house over in a marginalized part of our city, a little neighborhood called Optimus Park. Having Dave as a part of their, their community, having him in their home was never without challenges. Dave had addictive issues. He struggled with alcohol. He wrestled with a... Deep sense of regret for the decisions that had left him with a failed marriage and a daughter and a grandchild that he was barely familiar with. Tons of turbulence and messiness in life with Dave. But over the course of the two years, the two years that he was with these guys, the strangest thing happened in the midst of that little community. Dave started to heal. Now, make no mistake; um, he, he still was. It was still difficult to be around Dave. He, he, he still struggled with his addictions and his past. But in the midst of it all, Dave started taking responsibility for his life. Stayed, started taking responsibility for his actions. Experiencing long seasons of sobriety. He even he even started to believe that God really could love him, and that the forgiveness that Jesus offered was as much for him as anyone else. In fact, he even professed a faith in Jesus and decided to become baptized. However, a a life lived on the streets, a life of addiction, has a way of taking a toll on a person's body. And a little over a year ago, no one really knows how or even why, but Dave's life came to an end. I... um, I was privileged to be invited to his memorial service. It was in this just private little prayer space that this community would sometimes meet in. And I just sat in utter amazement as these 20 or so people, those who knew Dave the best, those who loved him fearlessly and relentlessly, spent about an hour and a half, and they laughed and told these hilarious stories of what it was like to live their life with Dave, and they, they wept. They wept over the enormous struggle of this man in the final years of his life, but then they wept over the victories too. And then, of course, they just wept because they missed their friend. In fact, they would just sit and cry and say, We just, we just miss Dave. We just miss him so desperately. And I couldn't help but think that this is the sort of love and this is the sort of community that a, the world just longs to know. In, in fact, I, this is the sort of community that I long to know. And that this is what it looks like to be in a loving community, the sort of community that loves in ways that are, that are so deep, that are so profound and relentless, so life giving, the sort of community that when it loves, it's like there are these banners that are flapping defiantly in the wind of all of culture that says, here in this community, everyone is welcome. Nobody is perfect. And anything is possible. And I, I wonder if people were to look at your life, I wonder if they would see that sort of love. I I wonder Do you think it's possible that God could do today what he's done so consistently in the past? Do you think God could take a life like yours? Do you think God could take communities like ours, like a watershed in a a warehouse, and turn them into the sort of community where people would say, that's what it means to be part of a loving community. That's what it means to be a part of a community where everyone is welcome, nobody is perfect, and anything is possible. That's what it means to enter into love. Do you think that God could do that for you and for me and for us? Would you pray with me this morning? God, there's this tension that exists that creates a a desire for us to be connected intimately in the right ways to the right things and the right people. And there's this reality of just how difficult it can be. And I think often, God, rather than pushing through the awkwardness and the uncertainty of moving towards people who are not like us, Like, instead of moving towards the unfamiliar, because that's what we're talking about here, instead of embracing a a faith that helps us become who we need to be as we deal with the, the insanity and the messiness of that, we just move towards the familiar. We just become apathetic to those people in those situations outside of our own safety, confinement, the bubble in some ways that we've created. And God, it's, it's just so painfully clear that you've called us to so much more. And so I, I want to start this morning by inviting you to just upend both of our communities. <laughs> just, just absolutely send us into turmoil. So that in the turbulence and the chaos we can be reminded of who we're supposed to be as a community where we can become the sort of loving community that the world craves that the world needs and that you dream for us to experience ourselves I also want to invite God for you to speak to a person who is sitting here maybe potentially they've, they've said I, I'm going to give like church and this God thing one more chance and if this doesn't work out, I'm kind of done i'm gonna I'm gonna move towards something else. I pray this morning that, in spite of what they've experienced in the past, maybe they've caught just a, a small glimmer of what really is possible in a community that has committed themselves to this to becoming the sort of community that you envisioned for us and may this morning be a, a seed that's planted in them that would re, would allow them to refuse to go any other direction other than towards you. God, thanks so much for the relationships that you've given us between our two communities. And thanks for a vision of community in Jesus that is so spectacular, so captivated, and so contagious. Thanks, God. This morning as uh, we enter into a time of and trusting our resources and our gifts to God through the tithes and offerings, I I would invite you to contemplate your own life. Maybe consider those people who sit in the margins of your world and your environments. And as we then enter into a time of worship, I would invite you to, to invite God to rearrange your heart and, if necessary, call you to a different place.